This is Brian Lee O'Malley, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... If you you don't own the material, you cannot let yourself be too attached to that material because inevitably you will be hurt. It may not be a huge hurt, but you may feel like you've been stabbed. If you care about those characters, if you care about the story, you are opening yourself up for injury. But if you are creating this work, if you are writing or drawing or both, you have to be emotionally attached or involved in the work in some way or else it's just not going to be very good. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at the GBB Podcast and on Twitter and YouTube and some of the other social places at the GBB Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at the Roarbots. And joining me this week is Sherry Sondheimer. And you can find me at SW Sondheimer on Twitter. So I feel like we should acknowledge the new introduction that people are hearing right now indeed it is most excellent is it most excellent i like it yeah i I, I, see i made this one so i don't know that i can call it most excellent because like i'd be like tooting my own horn like i enjoy it i like it i think it's good it's it's fresh it's a nice change i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you know and we're coming up on episode 200 i was going to unveil it for episode 200 but i don't really think that makes much of a difference uh, we're two episodes away, and I just couldn't sit on it anymore. I think it's a nice nod to the old one, but, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's paired back a little bit. I enjoy it. I figured 200 episodes with that other, the original opening might have been getting stale if anybody had actually listened to all 200 of them. Um, I don't know if there any is anybody who did that. But anyway, it's, you know, you're welcome. You, now you've got a different <laughs> opening to spice things up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we need that kind of excitement in our lives. We do. We do. It's sometimes it's um, our days can get so boring. And, you know, a a fresh introduction to a podcast could just be the thing that the doctor ordered. Mm -hmm. Speaking totally unrelated to this episode, but speaking of things that the doctor ordered, I I feel like I also need to mention uh, this big crazy thing that you and I are doing right now. Oh, my God. This is. This is turning out to be the best hate watch of my life. So let's back up. So quick introduction, a quick explanation. Uh, This is October. For anybody who's not listening to this when it's brand new, it is October of 2018. uh, And Shiri and I have decided in the spirit of the season, we are going to watch every movie in the Halloween film franchise. Um, It's 11 movies. Which, counting the counting the brand new one, and with the exception of Jamie having seen the first one, we have not seen any of them. True, I had only ever seen the first one a couple times because it's a classic, uh, but that was the only one that I'd ever seen. And I'd, it was one of those series that I always meant to go back and watch it, but just never did. 
And I'm so glad we're doing this. This has been so much fun. So much fun. (laughs) So we're three movies in at this point. If anybody is curious, what we're doing is we are watching it at the same time. Like we're, we're instead of like live tweeting, because live tweeting a movie that you're watching by yourself is a little bit weird because anybody who sees your tweets doesn't really know what you're reacting to. Mm -hmm. Um, Live tweeting only works when there's something actually live that everybody is paying attention to. So instead of that, what we're doing is we have a, a private Slack channel and the two of us are basically just talking to each other through in this little chat room about the events on the screen. And, and it's, it's, we've MST, MST3K'd it and uh, we've done this for the first three movies and basically I just take the transcript uh, edit it a little bit, throw in a whole bunch of screen grabs, and we put the posts up on the Roarbots. So if you are interested, you should go to the Roarbots, theroarbots.com, and just look for the uh, franchise frenzy posts. We're pretty sure we're hilarious. We are convinced that we're hilarious. I don't think anybody else thinks that we are. One of my friends messaged me. She was bored in a meeting today, so I sent her the link, and she actually said she thought it was pretty fabulous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you're yeah. stuck in a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're enjoyable. They're, they're, they're fun little um, trips through the movie where we poke holes in a movie that's already like Swiss cheese. So... Uh, it's fun. We're having a great time. We've made it through the first three so far, mm-hmm. which means that there's uh, eight more to go. Yep. Yeah, I'm so excited. And it's kind of interesting to watch them this way, realizing that a lot of what we see as trope mm. wasn't trope when the first Halloween movie came out. It yeah. established the tropes. So it's probably scary as hell back in 1978, but looking at it from 2018, we're like, <laughs> that's silly <laughs> yeah we're like that's exactly what everybody does in a horror movie why is she doing that well everybody else did it because that's what jamie lee curtis did right um but yeah so anyway go to the Roarbots, check out the franchise frenzy and uh we are slowly making our way through all 11 films this month leading up to the big day halloween at the end of the month so join us for the ride won't you uh but like i said that was completely unrelated to this week's episode this week, Shiri and I talked to Eric Schanauer. And if you are familiar with Eric, you're probably familiar with his Age of Bronze books, which he has been working on since, God, 1998. Mm-hmm. I don't think we talked about this with him, but like you as a creator, mm-hmm. could you imagine working on the same story for what has that been, 20 years? Absolutely not. <laughs> Even a story that big. Um, yeah. You know, even if you're digging into the details because you're also doing the art for it, I, no, I can't imagine having the patience to work on a project for 20 years. Yeah. And I mean, we we did talk about when he started, whether he thought he was going to be doing it this long. And he knew that it was a big project. He knew that it was going to be, you know, big and a little bit unwieldy and require a lot of research because he wants to make it as authentically genuine as possible. Like he wants every detail to be accurate as much as possible, according to what we understand about the historical time mm-hmm. period. But no, I don't think that he quite thought that he would two decades on, he would still be telling the same well, story. Well, a lot has changed in scholarship about about Troy and ancient Greece in the last 20 years. So he's had to incorporate all of those changes um as well and it's a lot 
It is a lot. And, you know, the the reason we are talking to him now, 20 years on, what they're doing is until this point, the books have been in black and white, which have really, um, really highlighted the line art, I think, really, really put a focus on the the artistic quality on the page. Uh, but what they're doing now is they're going back and they're reprinting everything in color. So a, a lot of books have done this. Bone did that. When Bone first came out, it was in black and white, the, the, the children's, uh, Jeff Smith's children's comic series. Um, and they went back and colorized that. Uh, a, you can tell the point of view that I'm coming from. But the Babysitter's Club books, Raina Telgemeier's original Babysitter's Club graphic novels were black and white. And now they went back and colorized those. A lot of manga, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at least with the first book, it really does make the pages pop. The, he, he didn't make any other substantive changes to the art or to the story. They're really just colorizing them. And from our conversation, it sounds like he's pretty, he's, he's a stickler for it. Like he, his, he, he described his working relationship with the colorist. It wasn't just like the colorist worked on the pages and he was like, wow, that looks great. All right, let's roll with it. Like, no, he had like tons mm-hmm. of comments and then they went back and forth a few times to get it really just right for him. Yeah. Um, but so we, we had a great conversation. We talked all about the, you know, the last 20 years of the story, where it's come from, how it's changed, where it's going. And he took some time away from the story uh, and he's going back to it now. So not only are they going back to colorize the series from the beginning, but he's also continuing from where he left off a few years ago. Right. And and he's going to pick up the story and also move it forward at the same time. And the fact that it's it's been with... I think he said it's been with Image the whole time. Yeah. It's also, I mean, that's a huge project for them. That makes it one of their earlier projects and it's still going. Yeah. Yeah. I had thought that it bounced around a little bit. Um, it, I must have just seen something with different imprints on, mm-hmm. on the, the covers, but it has. It's only been with Image the entire time, which is impressive that they have stuck with it. Well, not stuck with it, but they have believed in it enough to keep it going and to have allowed him to take this extended leave of absence, mm-hmm. I guess, away from the story that, that, you know, like, okay, take your time, do what you need to do. And then when you're ready to come back to it, we'll be here and we'll, we'll move forward with you. Which we've talked to other writers about, about that with image and how for certain books that makes it a really good place because they have the flexibility if they're working on other things or if they, for personal reasons need to take some time off image is really flexible about that. Yeah. Which is great. It's Mm -hmm. nice to hear those stories. It's nice to hear that there are companies who work like that in our understanding of their creators and don't just take advantage of them, which is so many of the horror stories that we hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, did you read the little Nemo return to slumberland books? I did not. A few years, whenever those came out, it was like two years ago, three years ago now. We picked them up in issues, and uh, I read them. This was, it must have been more than that. I again, I should have done my homework, but I, it, I remember reading them to Zoe because she couldn't quite read herself at that point. So it must have been a, several years ago now. But she loved them, and she did not know the character of Little Nemo at all. So this was her introduction to them, and I loved them because it was um, the same artist as Lock and Key. 
Oh, nice. So the the art is very similar. If you like Lock and Key from the visual perspective and the aesthetics of that book, then you're really going to like uh, Little Nemo Return to Slumberland. So I do recommend them. They're, it's it's sort of reimagines the character of Little Nemo to an extent, introduces some new characters, but they're a lot of fun. They're, it's a really good story, and I, I do recommend picking that up. I think I'm sure it's in trade by this point. I'll have to check it. I'll put it on the kids' Hanukkah list. Yeah, yeah. I do. I, it's fine. So we're going to go into it. Eric Shanauer, great conversation. We talk a lot about Age of Bronze and ancient Greek myth and, and legend and story and his creative process and where how he's developed and how the story has developed over the last 20 years and where he's going to go from here. Thank you guys again for coming back week after week, listening to the show, subscribing to the show, you know, getting in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We, we love talking to you guys. If there is somebody specific that you want to hear, hit me up. Let me know who it is, and I will do my best to get them on the show. But until next week, thank you guys for listening. Here's our conversation with Eric Shanauer. Take care. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's awesome to have you. Oh, you're welcome, Jamie. Jamie, I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Um, We're talking about Age of Bronze. for those who don't know, the, there's a new colorized version of the first volume that recently came out. But Eric, I wanted to know, you, you, the first issue, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, was published in 1998. And un- yes, until now, it's been in black and white. When you first right. began, was going black and white, black and white, excuse me, was that... Did you see that as part of your storytelling, or was that just a way to reduce costs and not have to colorize it? It was just a way to reduce costs, and I didn't have to take the time to to color. Yeah. So here we are, twenty years on. Have you grown yeah. to see it as part of the story? Like, have you? Is the black and white format part of how you've been telling the story? So is now seeing it in color. Is it is it odd for you? Is it something that you had to get to use get used to? Um, well, um, it it's I don't it's fine. The color's <laughs> fine. I I think it's beautiful. I don't particularly see it as something that I need to change my way of thinking about. Yeah. Um, although I really haven't uh, experienced doing a whole lot more new artwork yet with the idea that, okay, this is definitely going to be color, even though we've been working on the color for seven years. Uh, I'm currently inking in the next issue, and I did find myself thinking, okay, what color is this going to be while I'm doing, while I'm inking things? But I'm trying not to change my my thinking too much. Mm -hmm. I I guess uh, I'm still drawing with the intention that it'll that it's going to be black and white, I don't want to change the look of the project mm-hmm. radically. Uh, as far as just my drawing, yeah. So, um, but we'll see what happens. I don't know. <laughs> I still have many years to go on this project, so uh, who knows what kind of evolution it's going to actually go through. Does does the decision to add color have anything to do with? Um, the fact that, you know, more recently art historians have concluded that all of those early sculptures that, you know, we think are such graceful marble were actually pretty brightly colored when they were new, or is that totally separate? Um, that's 
pretty that's pretty much separate. Uh, the reason we we've gone to color was about seven or eight years ago. Uh, I was approached by a digital publisher to uh, release Age of Bronze as an app for iPad, and it just seemed logical to release it in color because it didn't cost any more to publish it digitally in color than it does in black and white. So uh, the, the publisher said they would find me a colorist because that was the second big problem. Um, we had eliminated the cost problem, but I just didn't have the time to color it all myself. Yet I did want to be very involved in what the coloring was and have complete approval. So that's the way uh, we approached it. And the digital publisher found me a colorist who's still the colorist, John Dallaire. And, uh, but John and I work closely on every page. Uh, he colors and, and submits it to me, and I make notes on, on things. And sometimes uh, we have to come up with new colors, new characters, new scenes, and come up with new colors for things. And uh, there's a total give and, give and take between us on that sort of thing. Um, so I have a, approval of all the color and uh, what you see in the printed uh, printed book, the full color book is is um, approved by me. Um, I do think that John is doing a terrific job, though. He's very very patient <laughs> with all my notes. <laughs> we go through about four versions of every of every page. That's an average. Um, sometimes it's three. I don't think we have ever gotten down to two yet, though. Wow. We're really trying. <laughs> what I'd love is his him to just send me a page and I go, oh yeah, it's beautiful. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're, not, we're not there yet. Uh, the the, the, uh, the, the um, scholarly uh, stuff about you know painted statues. Um, I know it's been very it's been popularized much lately, but you know scholars have known for uh, decades that that many of those statues were painted because there's a since they first started finding them, there's been traces of of paint on them. So I don't think it's that new. It's just uh, that they're presenting it in a mo more popularized way these days. Mm. What's it been like going back and and working on art and pages that you created 20 years ago? I mean, what do, what goes through your mind when you look at those original pages? Well, uh, some of it is, oh God, I've been working on this project for so long. <laughs> um, uh, some of it is. Oh wow! I forgot about that part yeah. of the story. Um, part of it is wow! I drew better back then than <laughs> I do now. And, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's like wow! I did a really good job on that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could do that sort of thing again. Um, and part of it is that it's not. It doesn't seem old to me. It just seems like the same thing because the story is still very much alive for me and I'm still working on it, and it's all just one long piece. So I just feel like, oh, yeah, that, that happened, you know, to the characters mm -hmm. in story time. Yeah, it was just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, so there's this sort of dichotomy. It, the work itself seems like it's been a while, but the story doesn't seem seems like it just happened. You know, you started this, well, you started it more than 20 years ago, but it's been published for 20 years and, and you yeah. just mentioned that you know you've got many years to go when you began did you realistically think that this was a multi-decade 
project or did you just think this is a big job but you know i'll get through it and it's not going to take me that long i i knew it was a huge job i thought it would be like five to seven years yeah so that, that was my estimate um no i didn't think i'd be <laughs> going more than 10 years uh, as i started working on it uh i, I knew it was going to get bigger um i think i have a really early blocking out of the story and to try to figure out how many issues it would probably take and i think i got to 42 but that's uh, that was a long time ago and mm-hmm. it's probably i estimate now it's probably doubled in size but i i, I don't guarantee to anybody how long it's going to be <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll see <laughs> what do you think makes comics a particularly good um medium for translating you know, either big historical stories or epic poetry or, you know, any of these giant old cycles? Well, I think there are two, two major reasons. One is that comics lets you see, see it. Um, so you can tell what it looks like, uh, because if you're reading ancient literature, you don't have the cultural, the cultural background generally to, uh, really, know what what's going on to see to see in your mind what they're talking about if there's like unfamiliar terms if you unless you're versed in what the people wore and what they ate and what type of buildings they lived in you you really don't you don't have a vague the vaguest sense of what might be going on whereas comics the artist can draw exactly either to be really um strive to be archaeologically correct like I do in Age of Bronze or come up with some vision of the artist's own that's not necessarily uh, realistic or, um, you know, rooted in realism. Uh, so you get that experience. Um, the other thing is, what's, what's the best thing about comics? Um, to get a, a version of the story that is more immediate I guess and by that I mean um, you know for an audience of today Mm. I mean I'm telling the story of the Trojan War for for readers now um, to make it more accessible Um, people can certainly can go and read ancient texts and that is that's a different experience of the story it's the same story or I strive to make my story the same story, hmm. basically. Um, but sometimes it's hard to get into that, hard to get into ancient texts. Uh, they're not written for an audience that has certain cultural expectations of to, for today, and I think it makes it more accessible. You're talking, we, I want, you mentioned that you're going to go back and continue the story. Um, you know, we're yeah. not just going back to the beginning and coloring, which you are, but you're also going to, you know, you've taken several years off from this project and you're going to go back and continue. Um, but it's two questions here is that it's also going to be in color. Um, and yeah. you, you, we kind of touched on this, how, you know, you write and, and draw this, you create the pages with the intention that it's still black and white, even though it's going to get colorized. But do you think that moving forward now, rather than going backward, is that going to change the way that you approach the story, knowing that it's going to be colorized? I, I don't really know. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. I, John and I have been coloring for about seven years now, and it hadn't changed. And I, you know, I've been working, 
have had issues come out within that time. Um, and it really didn't change my approach. Uh, now that the, f the now that the first volume is published, I this is what I, what I said earlier. As I've been inking um, in the last last couple of weeks, I have been thinking about the color mm -hmm. more of and and what it might look like. Um, partly because it's much more immediate. Um, the issue I'm working on now, I've got to get it done in the next couple of weeks because John's got to get it colored by the end of December. And uh, uh, I guess part of it is that immediacy yeah. that I am starting to think about the color. Whereas before, uh, when we were coloring, uh, after the... We were originally coloring for digital and... Uh, that the p digital publisher actually ceased operations a couple of years ago, so it's Age of Bronze is not available digitally anymore on an app for iPad. It's now Comixology is bringing it out, um, but we had not. But we had John and I had been just coloring, uh, not on any particular schedule. We were just d doing it little by little mm -hmm. until until we got to a point where it's like, okay, we're ready to go with the first volume. Um, but there was no schedule, there was no pressure, and I wasn't really worried about it or thinking about it. Now I, now there's a schedule and yeah. we've got to get it done. Yeah. The, the other thing that's different is that the new issues are going to be digital only, um, as yeah. opposed to both digital and print. Why is that? Because for the last, I don't know, 10 issues, I would get the sales statements and they'd always be in the hole and the whenever the, the books came out the, they would always make tons of money um, so it's clear what was selling and what wasn't and I didn't know exactly what to do because the comics you know the publish comics publishing is set up to release those issues first and then do uh, collected graphic novels um, and I was, I didn't know exactly what to do. I just, it wasn't working. Um, and the, the graphic novels would always pay for the, the single issues, even right. though single issues lost money. But after a while, you know, it, the amount of money the issues were losing just was getting to a point where it was sort of depressing. And, so I went to Image Comics, the publisher, and I said, look, this is the situation. And I, I, it, was, it was part of my reason why I wasn't working very hard on the, on the project anymore and why there has been sort of this lapse of publication for the past few years. Um, I just said, look, I'm having a problem here, and it's really impacting me psychologically and my ability to work on this, this uh, project. Um, what, what, what can we do? And they go, well, let's just go digital for the issues because – Clearly, publishing them is not is not really mm -hmm. doing doing any good. Whereas, it's funny. You know, I, I, oops, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Where people will wait for the books and uh, and they'll buy those. Yeah. Go ahead. I was to say I was at a a panel recently that um, Kelly Sue DeConnick and and Chelsea Kane were doing, and people were asking them about the industry and how it works, and and Chelsea just said, you know, it's a really weird industry and i hugely admire anyone who ever gets a book published because who knows <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well 
I've had I've had very interesting experiences. But you know, um, it just is what it is, and I've felt very fortunate that for most of my career I've been able to work on projects that I really liked. I mean, there's always been those projects where it's just like, oh yeah, okay, I'll do that. I need I, I need to pay the bills. Let's get this project done. But even even when the projects that with even with the projects where I don't really care. I don't have as much investment in them. They're still, you know, you have to be professional and yeah. let's do the best job I can. Um, it's kind of weird because I, uh, for things like, you have to, I, my technique at least, in approaching a job where I don't really care about these characters, I don't care about the story, I don't have any investment in this except doing it for, it's my job. Um, and I've accepted this project. I have to put my, I have to develop an emotional investment in them. I have to uh, care about the characters, care about the story, and and I can do that, you know, invest myself emotionally. But then when it's over, I just sort of shed that, and then years later I'll be confronted with the project, and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I remember how much I cared about that at the time. <laughs> so, but at the at the, and it's not like I actively don't care about it anymore i mean there's it's sort of this nostalgic feeling of oh yeah i remember that um but at the same time you know working for publishers who own characters you can't be too emotionally involved because you don't you don't own them you don't have any say over what happens to them um whereas with with age of bronze or some of the oz work i've done i have total control over them so I can um, fully emo- fully invest myself in those projects and care about them as much as I as is necessary to get them done and and they're mine at the end of the day, which is really yeah very good. Which is a good thing about this industry. It allows. I mean, there there didn't used to be that opportunity in comics. The, the publishers own just about everything. With Age of Bronze, though, I mean, you're t- you're working with one of the. I don't know. I, I mean, it's, it seems like it's one of the world's oldest stories, you know. I mean, it's it is it, yeah. yeah. It's it's the story that has just transcended the centuries, and even though it doesn't necessarily resonate with people in 2018, like we can't see ourselves in the story, we can see elements of our world and in, in in ourselves and in humanity. I mean, there's the same thing that could be said with stories like Lord of the Rings. You know, if you try to read it right now, it might not necessarily resonate with you, but the story persists. Like, it's still a story that people return to. And the Oz stories, too. True. Right. So, I mean, as somebody who has, you know, more than dabbled in those worlds, you know, has immersed yourself in in, in those stories... What is it about the stories? Like, why are they so powerful? What do they share that that makes them these stories that people keep returning to? Well, oh gosh, all these heavy philosophical questions. <laughs> 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 um, I, as far as the story of the Trojan War goes, which is what I can speak about, you mm-hmm. know, it. I think it's lasted because it does have on. When you reduce it to a basic level, it's a story about people, and it's a story that speaks to our basic instincts. And it's a story about loss and love, and what do you do when you're stuck in a society that says uh, you have to act one way, 
and then it doesn't treat you fair. It, it, it says if you do this, you'll you'll fit in and you'll get you'll you'll if you stay on the path that we say you have to be on, this is what will happen to you, and you'll succeed. But what happens when that doesn't work? You have to step out of society. And you have to figure out your own way. So, I mean, at least that's the story of the Iliad uh, at its most basic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's uh, something that every, every human eventually in this world can, can relate to. Um, so that is what, that is why the story has lasted for millennia. Um, it speaks to basic humanity at its, you know, at its foundational level. It's a story about, oh, it encompasses every, every emotional aspect of life. I mean, obviously the culture is different, but it is about what it is to be human. I mean, I think that's what it is in every story that lasts. I mean, Troy, Troy is probably, you know, it's one of the three stories that's lasted the longest. Uh, the others being the Bible and uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, mm-hmm. I think. There may be other things that are less familiar. Um, but I just thought it was a great story. <laughs> it sounded really fun. <laughs> and I'm like, boy, I could do that as a comic book and set it in the in the correct time period, which which doesn't really get done. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't. It's usually dressed up in classical uh, Greek drag, not set in the uh, Bronze Age, which is, I think, is the correct period. Yeah. So I just thought I'm going to do something that no one else is doing. Historical fiction done right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that no one else is doing it right. It's just. I'm going to do the Troy story, right? Yeah. I also feel like all three of those stories you mentioned, Eric, definitely encompass whatever that era's incarnation of sex, drugs, and rock and roll was. Yeah, well, what speaks to you? <laughs> I mean, that's what's spoken to everybody throughout, throughout human exactly. existence. And that's why it lasts. <laughs> I think. <laughs> well, I mean... The the story is notorious for for the research that you put into it and for the you know the the historical accuracy as close as we can get to a story this old. But did you ever have a temptation to to update any of it to make it a little bit more familiar or to modernize it in a way that might resonate a little bit more with the audience? Well, um, certainly, I it's I render it in. English, yeah. um, and I don't try to make the people speak in some sort of ancient Thank you. mode. Um, I certainly had to sort of think about that when I first began. I was like, well, how are they going to talk? Yeah. Uh, and I have I, I I do presentations, um, and I have this one slide where they're talking like in pseudo Shakespeare, and uh, like cometh forward uh, uh yes my lord and it's just like oh god i could never do a story like that yeah for you know sorry i could never do this story like that that'd be so awful um and or i could have done it like 
really try to be up to date, you know, like Shizzy and the Hizzy or something like that. <laughs> but <laughs> I, um, you know, that seemed not correct to me because that would, if I tried to make it really of the moment, that would make it of the moment. Yeah. And t- t- 30 years from now, people go, oh, yeah, grown, all that old slang. But uh, so it's just like totally, I try to make it pretty straightforward English language. Clearly, in 300 years, people are going to speak differently. If if even anybody's reading Age of Bronze in 300 years, they'll go, yeah, this is very of its time. But I'm just trying to make it very, the speech very straightforward. Yeah. Uh, and then in so the, that anyone can, anyone can read it. In the afterword um, that's in the new edition of the first book, you mentioned that um, you sort of looked at, at Greek art for the Greeks, obviously. And then you looked at Hittite art for yeah. the Trojans. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you decided on that sort of um, amalgamation of styles. Well, the the story of the Trojan War is basically Greek mythology. It's come down to us through uh, that tradition. So in the original story, the Trojans seem very much like the Greeks. They, they just, they worship the same gods. They seem to have the same culture. But um, you know, in researching the archaeology, it's that clearly wasn't the case. Uh, the site that we believe is Troy is in Turkey. Um, there was a lot of cultural crossover because there was a lot of trade going on back then. So we know there were contacts between uh, among all these cultures. But still, uh, I didn't think the Trojans were going to be Greek. They were not essentially Greek. Um, so I didn't know what they were. Uh, so I had to think about it and look, do some research. And first I was looking at Thrace, which is this area north of both Greece and uh, Turkey. And, uh, but it just, didn't, it just didn't work. It didn't seem right. I was very uncomfortable with it, the Thracians. Um, then, uh, I mean, I, I had run across the Hittites in my research, but there uh, culture is, I mean, there's a lot of documentation, and I was just like, oh, I have to do all this whole other area for research. Uh, <laughs> so I uh, sort of ignored them for a while. Then in uh, 98, I think it was, 96, 97, no, 97, February 97, there was a symposium at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., uh, on Troy, and the guy who was the head of the excavations at that time there there had been new excavations that opened in 1988 which i had become aware of during my research in the 90s and um professor monfred korfman of tubingen university was going to be speaking and he had been excavating at troy for almost 10 years at that point with a you know a large team with an arm from the u.s from the university of cincinnati and uh so i went to Washington and I and I had several questions and one of my questions was what did the Trojans look like and I was uh, so I talked to a bunch of people there and I approached Professor Korfman one of the things one of the decisions I had made was not to say I was doing a comic book version of the Trojan War because I thought if I say that <sighs> no one's going to take me seriously <laughs> 
so I did not tell anybody what I was working on. <laughs> Especially, what did you say this was, 1997? Yeah. 19, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that was not going to fly. <laughs> no. So, so I, I went to Professor Korfman and I said, uh, what, you know, what did the Trojans look like? And he said, well, you should look at the Hittites. And I'm like, okay, that's my answer. Got to do the Hittite research. I'll do it. Um, and I did. But once I knew that that was, you know, this was going to be a, de- a definitive answer, the current head of the Trojan excavations has said, look at the Hittites. I'm like, okay, um, if he's wrong, he's wrong. Mm. But I don't think he's wrong. And uh, I, I'm, I'm basing it on a, a, you know, a decision that someone, an expert, has made. So that was how come, and at the same time, I also wanted the Hittite, the Trojans to look different than the Achaeans. I wanted it to be visually, since comics is a visual medium, I wanted them to be visually distinct. You know, I don't know how, how different they look if you're just a first-time casual reader, but I think once you're, you, you read the story, you can start seeing the differences. Um, and the Trojan, my Trojans are different than my Achaeans. Edikins are the Greeks. Yeah, right, right. Something you mentioned that's interesting is that, um, you know, they worship the same gods, but you have chosen to sort of leave the gods out of this particular yeah. incarnation of the story. Was there was there a particular reason for that? I, I'm not dealing with anything supernatural because I want the story to work on a human level. Uh, one of my imp- impulses at the beginning when I first got this idea was I want to make sure all the characters are confronted with um, the responsibility for what they're doing. Um, I don't want them to have the excuse of, well, the gods told me to do it. They could, they can have that excuse because the characters do have their, they, they all have their religions. But um, at the end of the day, I want the reader to go, okay, this this guy made this decision, this horrible decision to, to sacrifice his daughter and have her die um, because of his ambition. Um, isn't That's kind of horrible, um, you know? Uh, and I want the reader to go, you know, um, people are still doing that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be, you're supposed to, my intention is that this is a universal thing that is still going on. This is the way humanity works. This is the way we all act. We all defer a responsibility for shameful actions that we've committed. Um, maybe we should think about that sort of thing a little, yeah. a little more deeply. The in your career, you've worked um, for a number of different companies, and independently and big companies. And this story alone has been um, published by uh, several different publishers. No, no, it hasn't. Image hasn't? Comics has been doing it. Image yeah, has done no, it from the beginning? Yes. Okay. The very beginning. I stand corrected then. Um, <laughs> but from your experience working working with Oz and working with you know Little Nemo and, and, and working with the Age of Bronze, what do you see as the differences in stories that make them a good fit for something like an image versus something like a Marvel versus something like a, a like a much smaller publisher who who is who is able to do a little bit more risk taking, I guess. 
oh, I don't know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, you just get, if you're a cartoonist and you want something published, you just find a publisher who's willing to publish it. Um, uh, I, I guess my, my thinking at the beginning when I first was trying to shop Age of Bronze around was a little more refined than that. I I chose not to go to DC or and Marvel because I didn't want to be this like small fish in a big pond where it would get canceled after three issues because it wasn't sort of their mm-hmm. their main sort of vision of what they publish. Um, even though both publishers obviously have for decades had many many different uh, types of work that they publish, but the superhero thing, you know, that's their main wheelhouse so if you're not in that you gotta yeah work harder to be noticed so my at the very beginning i knew a a mid-sized publisher was the sort of thing i wanted to go with um image was totally uh anomaly as far as publish a publisher for age of bronze i never thought they would be uh appropriate certainly image in the 90s was a very had a very different different image (laughs) no pun pun intended than than they do today uh um so but it's been a good home oh yeah yeah Yeah, i'm very very happy there yeah and and it it seems like they're willing to do not do what it takes, but they're they're very accommodating. It seems, you know, because I, I feel like with many stories, or if, if a creator says, you know what, I'm gonna go off and do something else, and I'm not gonna come out with another issue for a long time, and then you know they're still interested in 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 pushing forward, and they say, you know what, let's just do digital, let's try something new. It seems like they're they're willing to work with the creator. Well, they've been willing to work with me, Kevin. <laughs> Um, you know, I've, I had a track record before in comics before Age of Bronze and, um, I've won awards and Age of Bronze, the, the graphic novel series at least has sold really well. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's not like I'm an, was an unknown quantity at the beginning or have been an unknown quantity or uh, something that they've been, I hope it's not, Age of Bronze has not been something they've been embarrassed by. I think it's something that, uh, image appreciates and they're glad to publish um i think it is has a little bit of prestige for them yeah um and i think a lot of people there actually enjoy my work and what i've been doing so uh certainly yeah i think they're happy to publish it yeah that's good it's it's I would imagine from the number of people that we've talked to that are in the comic industry or graphic novel industry, that's not a universal truth. <laughs> it, does not, <laughs> it does not seem to be the case with every creator and every publisher. So it's, it is great to hear that, that it has worked out for you and for Image and, uh, because it's, it's clearly it doesn't happen for everybody. So that it is good to hear that there are success stories like that. Well, well, you know, oh God, I'm mean, yeah, this, yeah. There's some yeah stuff goes on. Uh, <laughs> I feel like, like any. Of... Oh, sorry. I feel like a lot of the writers we've talked to who have a book for Image though are at least happy with yeah. their interactions with Image on whatever that particular book is. Yeah. Though I feel like. Well, um, I mean, Image has a very clear-cut deal 
and uh, as long as you're as long as you know it, you're you're in, you can. It's it, it's there. It's what it is. This is the kind of uh, this is the publishing situation you'll be in. Mm-hmm. If if your if your book is accepted by Image for publication, then you sign the contract and that's what you're in. Um, I think you know. I, I alluded to this a little earlier in the question about uh, being emotionally in, invested in, in your work. Um, if you're working for one of the larger publishers, such as Marvel or DC, but not just Marvel and DC, I mean, if you're working for Archie, if, if you're working for any publisher that owns the properties that you're working on, it's spe- especially for young um, cartoonists who are in the in their first stages of their careers, you 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 have to if you, if you don't own the material, you cannot let yourself be attached to attached to that material because inevitably you will be you will be hurt. It may not be a huge hurt, but you may feel like you've been stabbed. Um, if you care about those characters, if you care about the story, you are opening yourself up for injury. Um, but if you are creating this work, if you are writing or drawing or both, you have to be emotionally attached or involved in the work in some way or else it's just not going to be very good. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this... Um, you ha- if, and if you ha- don't have any, ex- any experience or no one said, look... This is a danger that you need to protect yourself from. If you work for a publisher where they own the material, if you work, if you do it very long, yeah, there's going to be a bad. There are bad situations that come up because the, life is full of problems. And if you're involved in anything, at any aspect of life, at some point, there's going to be a problem, and you're going to have to deal with that problem. And if, and if a problem. And if someone else has total control over that problem, mm-hmm. you don't really have much say over what happens. And if they tell you what to do and you don't like it, yeah, you're going to get hurt. And that is a real, real uh, uh, situation in, this, in the comics industry. And for better or worse, that's just the way it is. Uh, and yeah. I, I, I mean, I've been able to navigate those things pretty well. I mean, there's been problems in my career. There's been problems with the age of bronze, but you just you act like an adult and you work it out. <laughs> um, that's you, all. That's just the way it is. That's life. <laughs> kind of um, hand in hand with that, you know, maybe not necessarily like controlling, you know, ownership, but when you work on a project like Little Nemo, Return to Slumberland, where you're you're not yeah. pulling du- double duty, you're not writing and drawing, and you are very much collaborating with an artist. How does that approach, like, how do you, what do you do differently? I mean, aside from, well, I just don't draw, I just write it, you know, how, how, how does that approach to create, to storytelling change for you as opposed to something like Age of Bronze where you're doing both? Well... On a creative level, it doesn't change very much because while I'm writing a project like that, I'm still seeing in my mind what I would do, how I would do it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, of course, intellectually, I know I'm not going to be doing it, so I don't really have to worry about it on a actual drawing level. Um, but on a creative level, yeah, I, I do have to worry about that. Um, when I'm starting the project, I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, I, for Little Nemo, I did know that Ga- Gabriel Rodriguez was going to be drawing it. Um, with when I was doing writing the Oz books for Marvel, mm-hmm. I, at the beginning I didn't know who was going to be drawing it. Um, they finally told me that Scotty Young was going to be drawing it, and I didn't know I didn't know who he was, or I didn't know what his artwork looked like. So I had to look it up online, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that um, might be that might be the first reaction to a lot of people's uh, a lot of people's first reaction when they first see Scotty Young's art. If they don't know who he is. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but then but, once but, you but, once when, you get through a whole book, you're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> but when he when I started seeing his artwork for for the Wonderful Wizard of Oz, I, 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 it was it was different than what I had seen online because I had seen like some X Men and some Human Torch, and it, it was. The Human Torch stuff, especially, was much earlier in his career, and his style had changed. But, and then when, even when he started producing the work for Oz, his style was different than it had been. You know, it had made a, a slight shift from what it had been earlier. And it was, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be good. Yeah. As soon as I saw the first page, um, it, it took maybe three or four issues before I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this is classic stuff that. You know, this is. I'm so glad that he's the artist. Um, that I felt like he's he is doing a job that is so good, yeah. and I knew it wasn't, wasn't going to be for everybody. And I still get people, you know, Oz fans in particular, who are like, oh, we wish you were drawing it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, well, it wouldn't have happened if I had to spend all that time drawing this. So you're just lucky it's happening, and you are absolutely lucky that scotty's drawing it and you don't appreciate what you're getting yeah um, <laughs> and then he did i hate fairyland and everyone was like oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah well <laughs> um did was, you know was was little nemo the, though was he was that character part of part of your childhood oh yeah i love little nemo yeah ever since i first saw it um the windsor mckay stuff uh I didn't find it until I was, I didn't really see it until I was about 13, I think. So it wasn't really early. It wasn't formative in my yeah. comics experience. But as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I love this stuff. I, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I love that book. It, it's it, My kids, um, they don't really know the classic Little Nemo. But when those, yeah, when, when your book was first coming out, we did, we picked up the issues and they just, they loved it. So it was it was Good. a great introduction to the character and to that world for them. Good, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, uh, although when I first Scott Dunbeer was the editor that called me up and said, "Do you want to do this? Um, Gabe's going to be drawing it." And I'm like, "Yes, I'd love to draw it, but what do you want me to? What do you what do you want the approach to be?" And he's like, "Well, I don't know. What do you want to do?" <laughs> and I'm like, oh, "I cannot redo uh, Windsor McKay. I have to." it can't be the same thing. We can't just like do little Nemo and just continue it. Cause that would be like, it's going to pale mm-hmm. 
in comparison to the original. So I had to figure out a, a way to approach it that wasn't that was a sort of sideways sort of thing. Yeah. Which is why I brought in a new kid. That's <laughs> I what I loved it. As soon as I soon as I thought as soon as I thought of that as like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do this. Fine, yeah. that's the key. Yeah. Is is there you know, for most of your career it's it seems like you've been playing in these sandboxes that very class yeah, very know. classic sandboxes that exist, you know, but are not quote unquote yeah. original. Is is there yeah, a part I of know. you that... I, can't, I can't come up with my own, <laughs> own idea. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, that's what it looks like though. <laughs> I mean, is there a part of you that, you know, not that you regret obviously doing what the work that you've done, but that you maybe had more time to tell your own stories? Well, you know, I have done a few small projects that people don't pay attention to, which are wholly my own. Um, I don't know if that tells me something that you know the ones that no one pays much attention to are 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 not very good. So I should just you know keep piggybacking on other people's stuff. I don't know. Um, yeah, I. What, whatever. I'm I'm not. I I don't regret anything. Yeah. Um, I just uh, the stories that grab me that I go oh I need to do this those are the ones that are part of me even though um, I've been playing in other people's sandboxes for most of my career they're still my stories um, it's my versions my 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 vision my take um, so they are my work I don't feel like I'm they're not they're less valid than if I came up with my own yeah. own things but you know I do have well I have I've been working on children's book manuscripts for many years too and I haven't been able to sell any uh, that's another so, whole, but, that's another industry that's just a hard nut to crack <laughs> it's like a yeah, whole other thing it's a, it's a whole other career <laughs> yeah and it's at this point it's secondary in my life so I don't work on it as as much as I probably yeah. would, as I need to, to be abs- as successful as I'd like to be in that. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much for your time. It's been thrilling to see um, Age of Bronze pages, the first book, come back. And it, vibrant, vibrant new pages. It's like seeing it again for the very first time. So that's it's exciting, and I can't wait to see all the other volumes that come out. Um, as well as the new issues. So that's that's awesome. And I thank you so much for the time. Well, you're welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. And I really uh, enjoyed uh, chatting here with you and with Cheery. And uh, it's been great. And- thank you. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>